Good morning, church. I want to start this morning by preparing my own heart and helping you to prepare yours by reading from Psalm 34. Consider the word of God. The psalmist writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Church, you know I, I love the Psalms. And they're especially helpful for me on, on mornings like this when, when we can't be together. I've spent time just reading the Psalm and preparing my own heart. And I hope that you've had a chance this morning to, to prepare your heart and to to be ready to hear from God's word this morning. I wish you were here. As I come in this room each week and I, I look at these empty chairs, I wish you were here, but even still, I want you to know that I am thankful for the opportunity, week in and week out, to have the chance to open God's word for and with you. And as I look at these chairs, I, I still know where many of you would be sitting if you were here. I can, I can see your faces and I can see how the, how the room would be set up and I want you to know that as I, as I go to God's word here, even in an empty room, that I have you on my heart and on my mind and, and I'm asking God, I have been asking God today and this week that he would use the, the teaching of your, his word to encourage you, to strengthen you, to give you the, the hope that you need for, for the week to come. I hope you're at a place where you've sat down. I hope you have your Bible, maybe a, a cup of coffee. And I hope that you are ready to hear from God's word this morning. We are headed this morning back to the Gospel of Mark, returning to the Gospel of Mark. Um, so we will be headed there in just a minute. But before we go to the scriptures, I want to take this opportunity uh, to pray for and with you. And as I pray, I hope that you will join me in praying and that you would just use this time of prayer to continue to, to prepare your heart for the hearing of God's word. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. God, Father, creator of all things, God, we thank you for the chance to be together even this way this morning. And God, you have told us in your word that before we were born, you knew every day of our lives. You knew all of them before we had lived one of them. And we thank you that you have gone before us into this new day and that you can see into the week to come. There's so many things about the days and the weeks to come that are uncertain for us, but we trust and have confidence that you know and we can trust you. We thank you that no matter what we face, you are with us. You have promised to never leave us and to never forsake us. And God, I know that there are those in our church family who this time of separation and isolation is getting harder and harder by the day. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, I pray for, for peace and strength and endurance and for your grace. God, I pray that you would give us a sense of the rest and the refuge that is available in you and in you alone. And God, I thank you this morning that we can trust your care for us. And I thank you most of all for the care that you have so shown us through Jesus. Lord, we know that every one of us have sinned against you and none of us deserve anything good from your hand. But nevertheless, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
We thank you for the love you showed in sending your son to die on our behalf. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that though we sin, we can receive mercy. And God, I pray that if there's anyone today who's still holding on to their sin, maybe sin from this week that is, they've still not repented from, God, God, I pray for your conviction. Would you grant hearts of repentance? We pray with the psalmist, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us. May your kindness lead us to repentance. God, I want to take this opportunity to pray for those among us who have need. We know that we are your, you are our provider and that we can trust you and we thank you for your provision. But God, I know there are some in need and they are waiting to see how you will provide. And God, we ask for provision and we ask for patience and endurance as we wait. Pray that you give us hearts of trust and confidence in you. God, I also this morning want to pray for our children. I know many of them want to be back together with the church as much as any of us. But for them, they may not have the understanding to, to really know why this long time of separation, to understand it. And God, I pray that you would use this time to continue to grow in them a love for you and a love for your church. And I pray that you would protect them and grow them during this time. God, I also pray for us as a church that you would continue to grow us and make us more faithful witnesses of you and of your gospel. God, this morning as we go to the gospel of Mark, we're going to be reminded again of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf to make our salvation possible. And God, I ask that you would make us bold and give us opportunities to speak of your work of salvation to those around us. Would you use us individually and as a church as instruments in your hands, taking the gospel to those who need to hear? And God, I pray also this morning for not only our reading and teaching of the scriptures, but so many churches in our city and across our nation are, are sending out into, through the internet and through different means, sending out the proclamation of your word. And God, I pray that many would hear and that you would use the events of this most unusual time to draw others to yourself. God, as we turn now to the gospel of Mark, I ask that you would open our eyes to see Jesus that you would open our ears to hear what you would have us to hear. God, would you give me wisdom and clarity? God, I am so weak. I need your help. Would you, through the power of your spirit, speak through your word for the good of your people, for the advancement of the gospel, and for the glory of your name. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, church, I want to invite you to, to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. The truth is that the preparation for this message has been a long time coming. I actually started looking at this text now about six weeks ago. And I was about halfway through preparing this message when, when things started changing and we started talking about cancellations and we didn't know what was going to happen, but we decided to spend a week in the Psalms and then a few weeks in James, and then we had Easter, and so we are now six weeks removed from our study through the Gospel of Mark, and so with that said, I had to go back and, and review, and so I wanted to take just a moment to, to refresh your minds and your memory on where we've been in the Gospel of Mark, and it really sets the stage for what we're going to consider in God's Word this morning. You'll remember as we started the book, as we just kicked off in Mark chapter 1, we, we started by identifying and, and seeing the purpose for which Mark wrote, his, his aim. Mark's aim as he writes this gospel is that we as readers would see Jesus for who he is, that we would see him as the Son of God. And then secondly, that we would trust him and follow him as his disciples. So we see this twofold aim, that we would see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, and that we would follow him as his disciples. And Everything in the Gospel of Mark is pointing us towards those two things. 
What we know when we come to the Gospels is that we don't have everything that happened in the life of Christ. We're not told everything he said. But each of the four Gospel writers have written a book and they've compiled these events and these sayings of Jesus with the goal of accomplishing specific purposes. And Mark's purpose is this, that we would see Jesus rightly and that we would follow him. With that in mind, if you have your Bibles open, you can look back over the previous couple of pages and just look at those headings in your Bible and just get a a refresher of the things that we have seen over, over the weeks we've spent in the Gospel of Mark. We saw his baptism. We saw his temptation in the wilderness. And then in chapter one, we, we followed him as he went out into the region of Galilee. And we're told that he was proclaiming the gospel of God. And we see there in chapter one, verse 15, the, the heart of his message. It says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This was the heart of Jesus' message. This was the gospel that he was proclaiming. And we see two parts to it. First, an announcement. The kingdom of God is at hand, and we know that Jesus is that king who's coming, bringing in the kingdom of God. We also see this invitation. Repent and believe. It's not only an announcement, it's also an invitation. And this is the message that Jesus was proclaiming. The kingdom of God is coming. Trust me, repent, believe. And what we see is that he preaches and proclaims, and as he does, many people are coming to him. And they're seeing in him what Mark emphasizes is authority. So you'll remember that time he first teaches in the synagogue, and we hear the people say, what kind of teaching is this? We've never heard anything like this before. This is teaching, a new teaching with authority. It's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. This is different. And we see his authority, and Mark helps us focus in on this in different ways. We see it in the calling of his disciples. We see it in his ability to heal people, to make the lame walk. We see it in the casting out of demons. And so as we move through chapter one, Jesus is going throughout the region of Galilee, teaching, healing, casting out demons, and people are coming to him. But as we come to chapter two, we see that not everyone is thrilled with Jesus and the attention that he's getting. And I will admit that I am sympathetic towards these guys. These are religious leaders, men who take their approach to God very seriously. And as they're watching what Jesus is doing, as they're hearing what he's saying, they have questions because Jesus, the things he's saying, the things he's doing, they aren't consistent with what they believe to be true, what they believe is required of someone who loves and follows God. As we move into chapter two, we start seeing these men approaching Jesus and approaching his disciples. And in fact, in chapter two and into the first part of chapter three, we have five consecutive events and five consecutive times when Jesus is approached and asked a question. And we see this pushback from these religious leaders. And we've already seen two of these. We can go back to the beginning of chapter two. You'll remember that scene where these friends bring this lame man to Jesus. They lower him through the roof. And before Jesus heals him, he does something that no one expected. He declares the forgiveness of sins. This was shocking. And there in chapter 2, verse 7, we see the response. These religious leaders asking the question, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So we see this first of these series of five questionings or confrontations. The second one comes when Jesus calls Levi, a a tax collector, someone who's known for his uh, irreputable profession. Jesus calls Levi to be one of his disciples. And that very evening, Jesus goes to the house of Levi and sits down at a table with, with Levi and his friends, people who are known as sinners, We get the question in chapter 2, verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and with sinners? And I won't take time to retell these stories. You can go back and and read them and, and remember what we've talked about. But this is all laying the foundation for what we're going to see again this morning. 
Jesus has shown up into a place and into a culture steeped in tradition. A tradition that in many respects was, was motivated by, by good intentions. These were people devoted to living in a way that they believed most pleased God. But now here's this man claiming to be from God. But so much of what he does and says flies in the face of what they consider right and appropriate. He's declaring the forgiveness of sins. No one can do that but God. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's clear that they don't see Jesus for who he really is. And this morning we come to another scene in another situation where they're looking at Jesus and they don't understand and they're pushing back and they're trying to understand, but probably not really. They're trying to silence him. And by chapter three, we see that they are dead set on making sure that he goes away. But we should be thankful for these conversations, for the questions that were asked of Jesus. Because as he is asked questions, as they push back on him, we get answers. We get to learn more about who Jesus is and why he came. And what we're going to see this morning in this text is that Jesus expresses that he came to bring a new and better way for sinners to be reconciled to God. See, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they saw a man who misunderstood the ways of God. But Jesus is revealing that he is God and that he's come in the fulfillment of the promises of God. It's with that in mind that I want to turn to the text. Mark chapter 2. We will start reading in verse 18. Hear the word of God. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of God. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. As we come to the text, like we've already established, we have a people questioning Jesus. A people who are frustrated by his seeming disregard for the things of God. And the issue at hand on this occasion is that his disciples aren't fasting. And so Jesus answers this question as to why his disciples don't fast. But before we go there, it's helpful for us to consider what the the background of fasting is specifically for the people in our text. Well, remember that these these are Jews. These are the historic people of God. If we go back to the Old Testament, we'll find that there's only one day a year that God had commanded in the law that the people should observe a fast. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, in the giving of the law, Jesus laid out this day of atonement, a day when a priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer a sacrifice of blood on behalf of the people for the covering of their sins. And this would happen one day a year, the day of atonement. And God also prescribed that on that day, all the people should observe a fast. It should be a day for them to stop and reflect on their sin and for their, on their need for forgiveness. So this was a day of, of grief, of reflection. It was a somber and serious day, and so the call was to fast, to set aside food and to consider your sin and your need for forgiveness. This was the only fast that was commanded by God in the law. But as we read through the Old Testament, we see that, that different people fast at different times for different reasons. But Almost always, it's, it's related to mourning or repentance or seeking God to take away sin or to take away some 
form of pain or grief. This is how the Old Testament speaks of fasting. People approaching God in grief or seeking relief from pain. But what we see as we come to the time of Jesus is that fasting has increased in its use. Several different sects, the Pharisees among them, we see the disciples of John among them, have started fasting on a very regular basis as part of their religious tradition. And by this time, we see that many of them were fasting as as many as two times per week. And so the Pharisees, for example, fasted every Monday and every Thursday. These days were set aside for fasting week in and week out. We actually have an example of this in, in Luke 18. You probably remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go into the, into the temple to pray. And maybe you remember the prayer of the Pharisee. It's recorded in Luke 18, verse 11. He says, God, I, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other men, like extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. And then he says this, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So, just right there in that prayer, we get this, uh, this reference to this two-time-a-week fast. And we, we have examples of this in other Jewish writings, that fa- fasting had become a staple in their religious practice. Those who were known for taking their approach to God seriously, those who were the most devout, were committed to this habit of regular fasting. And that's why people are coming to Jesus and saying, The disciples of the Pharisees fast. The the disciples of John the Baptist fast. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And on the surface, it may seem like a really honest question, but of course, knowing the context and those from whom the question is coming, we, we know that they are out at some level to trap Jesus. They're critical and they're opposed to him. Those who are skeptical don't understand why someone who claimed to be of God, someone who made the kind of claims that Jesus made, wouldn't adhere to some of the most common and customary religious practices. So they ask the question. And there in verse 18, we, we have the question laid out. And the rest of our passage, verses 19 through 22, are, are all the response of Jesus. And it's in his response that we have the chance to learn so much about who Jesus is, and why he came. I said earlier, we should be thankful that these questions were asked and recorded for us because Jesus is helping us to to put together more clearly who he really is and why he came. We see his answer starting there in verse 19. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, as is the case with Jesus so often, he doesn't answer plainly. Instead, he answers in an analogy. And before we talk about the implications of the analogy, it's helpful for us just to get a picture of of what Jesus is describing. He's speaking in terms of a wedding celebration. Now, for us, a wedding ceremony, a long wedding ceremony is about an hour. And then we have a party afterwards, a reception that's maybe two, three four hours maybe. But for us, all of it's contained in an afternoon or an evening. But in this culture, weddings were much longer celebrations. For them, a normal wedding celebration was seven days. Seven days of eating and drinking and dancing and celebrating. It was a long and intentional intentional time of joy, celebration, a week-long party that culminates in the declaration and the marriage of of this couple. And of course, when we think about a celebration like this, here's what doesn't happen. People don't show up to a celebration like this. Say, you know, y'all go ahead. I'm fasting right now, so y'all go ahead and party. I'll, I'll be over here. No, that doesn't happen. And remember, fasting is not only about foregoing eating and drinking. It's not just that they would skip the food. No, fasting, it's a an act of sobriety and focus, a time of reflection and maybe mourning or grieving. So it doesn't make sense. It's, it's inconceivable, the thought of someone going to a wedding and at the same time keeping a fast. A wedding isn't a time for fasting. A wedding is a time for feasting. 
And this is the picture that Jesus is using. This is how he answers the question about fasting. My disciples don't fast because wedding guests don't fast at a wedding. When the bridegroom is there, fasting isn't an option. It's a time for rejoicing. It's a time for joy, not mourning, not for sober reflection. And that's the answer Jesus gives. He doesn't explain the analogy. He just provides it. But what we know and what we can see is that Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom and to his disciples as the wedding guests. So they are with the bridegroom. And because he's there, this is not a time when they can fast. When the disciples are with Jesus, it's not a time for fasting. It's a a joyous time. They are with Jesus. They have seen him for who he is. This is a happy time. It's a time for rejoicing. I just want to stop there for a second. Because I think in that is a reminder for us. We don't have the privilege right now to be with Jesus in the flesh. But the Bible does speak of us as being a people who are united to him. And as people who are united to him, we should be people of joy. And I'm not suggesting that we don't have times and days and even seasons of sobriety and reflection. But over and over in the New Testament, we are called to be people of joy. Why? Because we are united to Christ. We have hope in him. We have seen him rightly. We believe that he has saved us. We know the bridegroom. And in fact, we aren't just guests at the wedding. We are called his bride. That leads us to the implications of the the imagery that Jesus is using. He's using the analogy to make a point of why his disciples don't fast, but there are layers and layers of depth and meaning to what Jesus has said here. As he refers to himself as the bridegroom, the, the people who were there and originally heard Jesus may or may not have understood all the layers of what Jesus was saying, but as Christians, we can put these pieces together. We know that throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the groom, the one who has come, seeking his bride. In fact, John the Baptist has already used this analogy pointing to Jesus. And maybe it comes up here because those asking the question are familiar with the disciples of John. But you'll remember back in John chapter 3, John the Baptist said, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Here we see John has already taken this this idea of Jesus as the bridegroom. He's pointed to Jesus as the bridegroom. Now, Jesus takes this title upon himself and refers to himself as the bridegroom. And what's really significant about about the fact that John used this, now Jesus has used it for himself, is the way the Old Testament speaks of the husband-wife relationship in regards to, to God. Maybe you know that throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of himself as the groom that will be united to a bride. See, God is in a covenant relationship with his people. And he says over and over again that he will be faithful to his people as a husband is to his wife. It's a common analogy, a common picture used throughout the Old Testament. But this is important. Never is it used regarding the Messiah. It's always God as the groom and his people as the bride. But now Jesus comes on the scene and refers to himself, what? As the bridegroom. Somewhat subtly, he's making a very significant claim. Jesus is saying, in essence, I am God. I am the one coming for my bride. It's a way of saying the people of God have been waiting for their groom to come, and now he is here. The consummation of the marriage is coming soon. As you think about the people of God that have been waiting for this one to come and now he's here, 
This is why it's not a time for fasting, but a time for joy, a time for celebration. They can't fast right now. The bridegroom is here, the long-awaited one. Not a time for fasting, a time for feasting. It's not a time for mourning. It is a time for joy. This is the reason Jesus gives why he and his disciples don't fast. Now, you'll see in the next verse, he says that there will be a time when he is taken away. And in that day, there will be a time for fasting. Now, we're going to save that. We're going to come back to it. For now, I want to move on to verse 21 and 22. Because after initially answering the question, Jesus goes on. He's announced now that he is the bridegroom that has come. But now he explains what has changed in his coming. He he explains that with the coming of the bridegroom, a new era for the people of God is dawning. Not only is he communicating that he is the bridegroom and the people of God are the bride, but that he is bringing something new and better. And he explains this using two different illustrations, two different parables. And he, he illustrates the difference between what has been in the current religious forms and then what is coming, what he's bringing. He's starting to make clear that in his coming, there's going to be a radical change in the way people approach God. The forms and traditions are about to be replaced by something new and by something better. So two parables. And the first uses old clothes and a a new patch. Look at verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. So let's get the picture. We all know that something happens the first time a piece of cloth or a piece of clothing is washed. What happens? Well, it shrinks. The first time a new piece of material gets washed, it, it shrinks a little. We've all had the experience of going, trying on something, and it fits just right. But you get home, and you've worn it and washed it a couple times, and then you realize, man, this doesn't fit right at all anymore. And this isn't a new phenomenon. It's always been true that new cloth shrinks a little bit the first times it's washed. And for that reason, Jesus says, no one takes a piece of new unshrunk cloth and uses it to patch up an old garment. Well, this he says, no one does this. As if everyone knows this is true. You know this is true. And so if we have an old pair of pants with a hole in it, we, we shouldn't take a, a new piece of cloth that's not been washed and, and use that to patch the hole. Why? Because when it's washed, that new piece, that new patch is going to shrink. And not only will the patch tear off, but he says here it's going to make the hole worse than it was to begin with. And it may seem like an odd illustration, at least for us, but, but the point that Jesus is making is significant. What Jesus is getting at is that these old forms, these Religious rituals that people have been relying on as a means of approaching God, as a means of being in right relationship with him, these are the old garments. And now Jesus has come as this new piece of cloth. And he wants them to hear that you can't just take what is new and add it to what is old. If you do, you will ruin them both. See, he's laying a groundwork. He has come proclaiming that there's a new way to God coming. A a new relationship is being established. And of course, this has been the plan of God all along. Jesus has come bringing the new covenant, the fulfillment of the promises of God. We can go back to the prophet Jeremiah. Maybe you're familiar with what Jeremiah says in chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with our fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets, guided by the Spirit, foretold that God would establish something new. This is what God had promised, and now it's coming to them. Jesus is coming, establishing a new and better covenant. And what we have to recognize is that what Jesus brings isn't a convenient add-on to their current religious system. Salvation is not Jesus plus something else. Jesus came and Jesus is what we need. He didn't come to improve their religion. He came to fulfill it and to supersede it. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Jesus is expressing that something new is coming, different from the old and something better. Then he uses another illustration or another short parable. Making the same point as the last, but this time using the idea of of wineskins and wine, new and old. But it only makes sense if we understand what a wineskin is. Today we keep wine in bottles, but at this time wine was stored in these animal skin containers. And these skins worked well, especially for new wine, because wine would go in and new wine still is, is fermenting. And as it ferments, it expands and it produces gases. And as it does, that, that new wine skin still can stretch. But he says here, no one takes new wine and puts it in an old wine skin. Why? Because that wine skin is already, already stretched. And as it gets older, it gets brittle. So if you put new wine into, a new, into an old wine skin, it will expand, destroying the wine skin and also wasting the wine. You could put old wine in an old wineskin, but new wine must not go in an old wineskin. So there's your lesson on the history of, the, of wine storage. Don't miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. He wants them to understand that he has come bringing something new. He is the new wine. And new wine isn't to be put into old wineskins. Jesus has come to establish the new covenant, a new and better way for the people to be brought into a relationship with God. And this is the culmination of the plan of God from the beginning. The old garment and the old wineskins represent the old covenant and the old forms of worship for the people of Israel. But Jesus has come bringing something new. And the salvation that Jesus is announcing is not received through a combination of the law plus Jesus. No. Jesus has come as the one and only way to enter the kingdom of God. And that is not to say that the law was wrong or that God's plan didn't work. No, the law was good and it had a purpose. Its purpose was to point to Jesus, to show people their inability to keep the law, to reveal their sin, to show them that they needed something greater and Jesus is that greater that has come. Probably the best way to understand this whole concept of old and new and what Jesus has really done in his coming is to read and understand the book of Hebrews. And I want to just give you a a sampling from Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start in verse 1. We read, For since the law, the law of God in the Old Testament, has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, can never make perfect those who draw near. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, which is you if you are in Christ. The law and the sacrificial system can never accomplish what Jesus accomplished in his coming. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that's what it says, 
a new and living way. That he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What the writer of Hebrews makes so clear here and throughout the book is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed towards. In him, God has established a new and better covenant. Through him, there is a new and better way for the people of God to be brought near to God. We can go on, but hopefully you get the point. The point that Jesus is making through these two illustrations. They asked him, why aren't you keeping the traditions? Why aren't you living the way we have always lived? And he expresses that he has come bringing something new. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things that have come before. Jesus is pointing his disciples to a new and better way, the way that has been opened through him, and this is why they don't fast. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The coming of Jesus and what he was bringing was a reason for joy. Now that brings us to the end of our passage, but maybe you remember that we we skipped a verse. Jesus has said that as long as the bridegroom is with him, it's not a time for fasting. But in verse 20, he says this. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, once again, let's get the imagery. Earlier, we talked about the the wedding celebration. The bridegroom is at the wedding celebration. But listen to what Jesus says. The day will come when the bridegroom, not yet the husband, were still at the party, still the bridegroom, somewhere in the midst of the celebration, the bridegroom is taken away, which is an unusual thought. What happens? Is this a, a kidnapping of some kind? That word taken away, it literally means picked up and carried off. What Jesus is doing here is he is foreshadowing and foretelling the taking away that he will experience when he is taken away and taken to the cross. For now, his disciples can rejoice because he is with them. They are with the one that God has promised to deliver them. But there will come a day when he is taken away. And this is a, a reference to that day of separation that is coming. On that day, it'll be appropriate to fast. It's incredible foreshadowing. But consider this. While we look at this picture and say, it doesn't make sense that a bridegroom would be taken away in the midst of the celebration. He's there. He's about to meet his bride. But what we recognize in the story of Scripture is that until the bridegroom is taken away, until Jesus died and shed his blood and rose from the dead, we could never be his bride. We needed his sacrifice on the cross. His death is necessary. And it's through this that Jesus can accomplish the new things that he is pointing towards. He is the new patch. He is the new wineskin. And all that's made possible through his death and through his resurrection. It's not appropriate for his disciples to fast while he's there. But a day will come when fasting is appropriate because he will be taken away. Now, there is a question about the extent of the application of that verse. Is Jesus only referring to those days between his death and his resurrection? Or is he speaking of the taking away or his leaving all the days that follow between his ascension and now? Well, it's clear that this is a reference to his death. But at the same time, we know that Jesus has gone away. And we are living in a time when Jesus is not physically with us in the way that he was with the disciples. And we have been called to be a people in waiting, anticipating his coming. And part of that waiting should include fasting. And we're not going to spend a long time unpacking um, how we can and maybe should use fasting today. But certainly as a people... Living in a sin-cursed world where pain exists and where grief exists, but we're waiting and looking forward to the return of Christ. Fasting has been given to us as a gift. 
And not because there's anything inherently spiritual about skipping meals for a day or so. But it's this idea of setting aside time for, for prayer and reflection, for communion with God. And there is great value in that. What we don't have here in this text is a command to fast, and we actually have no command in the New Testament to fast. But we do have examples of the people of God using fasting as a way of approaching God, of anticipating his return, of, of coming to him in, in dedicated times of prayer. That's not the primary point of this text. What Jesus is doing here is pointing to the joy that should exist because he's come and also moving us towards what he is establishing, what he's going to create through his death. It's an incredible passage, and like I said earlier, we should be thankful for these questions that were asked because as these questions were asked, we get this insight into who Jesus is and why he has come and the benefits that we are receiving. I think there's a few different ways we could take and apply this to us today, right now. And maybe you've already put some of these things together, but I want to end very quickly by just giving you three things that have stuck out to me as by way of what we should take away from what Jesus is saying here. For simplicity's sake, I'll give you three words, each starting with the letter R. Recognize, rejoice, remain. First, recognize. Recognize Jesus for who he is and what he came to accomplish. As we look at this passage, I can't help but see these two different groups of people. The disciples who have seen Jesus and recognize him. And the Pharisees and so many others who saw Jesus, heard his teaching, saw the miracles, and yet never really understood who he was or why he came. They didn't recognize the new and better way of salvation that he had come proclaiming and accomplishing. He was there, they saw him, but they missed him. And the same is true today. So many who have heard of Jesus and know of Jesus, but have never recognized him or recognized their need for him. And so many like the Pharisees are relying on the things that they do. If I go to church, if I pray, if I fast, if I give to the poor, all good things, things we should do. But this is not the way we're brought into right standing with God. We are only made right with God through Jesus. So when I say we should recognize, we should recognize who Jesus is and also what he came to accomplish and that he is the only way by which we can be saved. And we can't just take Jesus and add him to our old religious systems. The new wine of Jesus can't be stored in man-made religion. And the new patch of Jesus is not meant just to be added on to an old garment. Jesus is God himself, our way of salvation. So we must recognize who Jesus is rightly. And by extension, we should be helping other people see Jesus rightly as well. Pointing them to the one who's come to meet their greatest need. This is what we've been called to do. To recognize Jesus and to help other people recognize him as well. So first, recognize Jesus. Second, rejoice. Rejoice because the bridegroom has come and is coming and we are his bride. We've already touched on this and I won't elaborate much further. But I do want to encourage you to take some time this week to dwell on this fact that Jesus has called himself the bridegroom and called us his bride. And he says here that when we are with the bridegroom, we should be a people of joy. We are called his bride. It's a reminder of the joy we should have in knowing Jesus and a reminder that we have eternal joy ahead. The wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a joy we should have even now through our union with Christ. We recognize Jesus. We rejoice in Jesus. And finally, we remain watchful and faithful. In the text, Jesus refers to his going away. And we live now in a time of waiting. 
We wait in a world that is cursed by sin. We wait in a world where pain and grief exist. We wait in a world where even creation groans for the coming of the Lord. We know that one day we'll be with him. But until that day comes, we must remain watchful and faithful. Faithful in our obedience to him. Faithful in our proclamation of him. He has come, creating a new and better way, and he is coming again, the bridegroom for his bride. In church, we should long to see him rightly, to recognize him, rejoice in him, and then commit to remaining faithful as we await his coming and the salvation we have received through the new covenant. I wanted to end this morning with a reading from Titus chapter 2. I think it draws together so many of the different themes we've considered this morning. So I'll read it as we close. Titus 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for Jesus. It is beyond understanding that you would send him to live and to die on our behalf. And God, not only to save us, but to have a relationship with us, to call us his bride. God, we thank you for what you have done for us in him. Now, we ask that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to see Jesus rightly, and as we see him, to point others to him. And would you make us a people of joy, and a people who remain watchful and faithful as we wait for his return. God, I thank you for your word. What a sweet gift. I thank you for your church. I pray that you would keep us in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, hear the benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Church, you are loved. I hope you know that while you may be at home alone, you are not alone. You are loved, and I want to encourage you to reach out if you need anything. As always, we will meet at 1045 this morning, not on Zoom, but on Skype. You should have information about that in your email. We have a special guest this morning, so I hope to see you there. I love you, and I will look forward to seeing you soon.